Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. This looks like it. We're in Revelation chapter 14. 14, chapter 14 just finished looking at the beast right we saw that the beast was given power to be able to kind of politically militarily and economically rule over basically rich poor free and slave Um, and we saw that the mark of the beast was really uh, anti-shema where the israelites would put the law of god on their hand or their forehead this mark of the beast was uh, against that and it was really uh, the mark of a man and the mark the numerology for uh, the beast and Caesar and Nero is 666 and believing that that's what John is referring to kind of have to keep that in mind as we move here into chapter 14 verse 1 it says then I looked and before me was the lamb Interesting. Again, we just went from this beast and the man to now the lamb. Standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So after the mark of the beast, we see these here who are marked with God on their forehead. Um, We saw specifically that Rome and just that whole rule is what John has been talking about, about the political, military, economic power that Rome had, that these governments ruling had. And then this scene opens up with worship taking place. And the contrast to the mark in the foreheads and the father's name, um, it might seem like an unuseful response to what has just happened. In other words, why do we come here to worship after we just saw the power of the beast 
and the mark and no one allowed to buy or sell unless they have this and now we talk about worship and we've got the 144,000 again and it's these contrasts that John plays on that are there to help us again see the contrast between what he's trying to describe in the ways that this world system is being run and what God is doing. Eugene Peterson wrote something that I thought it was really uh, powerful. He says, this change to worship is not to abandon the field to the enemy. In other words, it's not like, okay, we can't do anything, we're just going to worship. We are apt to think so until we find that these non-actions of worship are the very acts that are backed up by the leadership of the Lamb, who is in the thick of history inaugurating the kingdom of his nativity, consummating his rule in the crucifixion and resurrection. If worship is not a waste of time for the Lamb, it cannot be for us. Excessive activism is typical is typical of those who do not live by grace. Which I thought was very powerful, right? The contrast to the beast now is worship. The contrast to the mark in buying and selling is the mark of God on their forehead. And we start seeing a difference. You know, the way we herd sheep or the way they're done in Europe is very different than the way it's done in the Middle East. In Europe, they use dogs, they use sticks, and they kind of push the sheep towards where they want to go. In the Middle East, a shepherd leads and the sheep follow. Very different. And this is the contrast that we're seeing. We're seeing Jesus as a shepherd, right, leading his sheep by example not beating them or herding them into a pen, but they are following him. In fact, that's what it says in verse 4. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that's an important part of this because that's what Jesus said, right? He said, come and follow me to his disciples. And then they dropped everything and went after him. Uh, Remember, he called Matthew in Matthew 9, 9, and he said, follow me. That's all he said to him. Um, in John 12, 26, he said, whoever serves me must follow me. The resurrection after uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the shore and kind of talked with Peter and said, do you love me three times? And Peter said, he does love me to feed my sheep. And then Peter asked, well, what about him? In John 21, verse 19, it says, Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify God, which is very telling because he said, someone will lead you. You will not go where you want to. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom loved, who Jesus loved following him. And this was the one who had leaned against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I wonder if this is a better way of explaining what we do than saying we believe in Jesus, right? We follow Jesus. Because believing in Jesus could mean all kinds of things. Following Jesus 
has more to do with living like him, following his example, following in his teachings. And I think that that is an important thing to understand here, that the following is what is taking place. The example of Jesus is what is being seen here in contrast. And the example of Jesus no doubt occupies John's thoughts as he's writing this. In Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? In verse 6, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Right? Compare that to verse 1. Who's there on the holy mountain? It's the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Who are the nations that are raging? It was the beast that we saw in the previous chapter. Here we see the lamb standing on the mountains. We, we see, again, this kind of contrast that's taking place with this. They are conspiring, trying to plot in vain, and that the king on Zion, on the holy mountain, is the lamb. And so the two monsters in chapter 12 are the ones, I think, in Psalm 2 that are raging. The 144,000 that we met in chapter 7 are those who are warring against the beast. They are symbolism, not defiling themselves with women, is actually taken from Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 and 10. And I'll kind of let you go over that, but in Verse 9, it says, when you encamped against your enemies, keep away from everything impure. Verse 10, it goes a little bit more explaining what that means. If you want to look that up, I'll let you do it because it's a little detailed. And 1 Samuel 21, verse 5, David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions. They are not even on missions that, that are not holy, how much more so today? And so this abstaining from women was something that the warriors did to make themselves holy in battle. And these symbolize the people of God who have abstained from the impurities that are, and they are ready for this battle. Okay, remember in chapter 7, right after the 144,000 are named, the 12,000 from each tribe, it goes on and it says that there's a number which nobody can count. Right, so first it's 144,000 and then it says there, I saw a number which no one can count. And it's a representative of the completion of Israel, right? What God's intention was, which was to be the whole world, all those who would follow after his rule, his law. And so we see that these who are kept pure, it's symbolic of them being prepared for battle, prepared for the battle against this beast. Okay, again, I think it's symbolic. I don't think it's literally 144,000 who are virgins. I think it is symbolic to these other passages. Remember, most of Revelation is taken from the Old Testament. It's just not cited chapter and verse. It's something that is induced. And again, many of the readers would connect these dots more so than what we do. Notice in verse 4 that they are the first fruits of God, 
right? So they're not the end, they are the first fruits. There are more that have come and more that will come, those who will follow him and his example. And so we see that following him is an important part of this 144,000 and of those who will come after as well. We also see that no lie is found in their mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says of Jesus, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Again, following his example is really what we see in this opening verses. This is the people of God following after Jesus, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They are following his example. They are the first fruits. They, like he, there's no deceit in their mouths. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair. Of course you did. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur and the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. So the angels are these messengers giving declaration of God's his greatness, the good news, proclaiming uh, the judgment that will come and the warning also that are there. And these are powerful words that, again, are filled with all kinds of symbolism. And we need to keep this in mind to understand the force of the symbols that are being presented here I think we have to look back to Babylon because Babylon is mentioned. It is the capital of the empire that just devoured the tribes of Israel, the remaining tribes of Israel, right about 597 B.C. This city remained in the Jewish memories. Babylon was something that they would have very clear identification with and what it represented to them. It represented examples of wickedness, of idolatry, of uh, immorality, of cruelty. 
And the book of Revelation uses Babylon continually as a symbol that John clearly is identifying Rome with Babylon. We've seen that time and time again. And so all those things that their mind would go to with Babylon, he is doing the same thing with Rome here, helping them to see. And so this is Rome seen as Babylon and seeing it through a couple of Old Testament prophets and prophetic books. The first book would be the book of Isaiah. The central portion of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, is addressing the Israelites in exile who have almost given up hope. Their exile in Babylon seemed to be the end of their story, not just their story of their lives, but the end of the Hebrew story. It seemed as if Babylon's gods had exiled Yahweh. And Yahweh was no longer the strongest god. These gods had defeated, or it appeared that they had defeated Yahweh. And so the prophet Isaiah speaks of Yahweh's great covenant with Israel, his faithfulness. He is the creator of heaven and earth, that he will not be bested by any other gods, that there are no gods besides him, that he will rescue his people, reestablish the covenant, and renew the whole of creation. That is the promise to the exiles that are there in Babylon in that central portion of Isaiah. How is he going to do it? He will do it through the work of his servant, which we see in Isaiah, which is the Messiah. And there are four poems that come from this prophecy there in the center portion of how he's going to do that. They highlight the servant's mission to rescue Israel and to bring justice to the world. And then the work that seems unfruitful will reveal Yahweh to the nations. And then his willingness to hear Yahweh's voice, suffering and patience, and finally his shameful death bearing the sins of his people, leading to his resurrection and being vindicated. And around these poems is the story of the doom of Babylon. She has made her captives drink the cup of wrath, it says in chapter 51 of Isaiah, verses 17 to 23, right? Very similar to what we saw in verse 9, the the cup of wrath that is poured out. A third of the angel says, um, strength into the cup of his wrath. And so there is these correlations to Isaiah and Babylon, the hopelessness that the children of Israel felt, the promise of the servant coming to restore the covenant that God had made with Israel and bring about victory, but it was a victory through his sacrifice. Their evil was going to be rewarded. And in this context, that Isaiah announces the arrival of the good news, right? Verse 50, or chapter 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. John describes an angel carrying the eternal gospel, the eternal good news. 
what is the good news? Again, we often think of it in a very personal way, that it's God loving us, forgiving us, promising to take us to heaven, not judge us. But I think the message is a lot bigger. It's a lot more than that. First of all, the message announced to the exiles in Babylon that God has won the victory and they are free to go home. See that in Isaiah 52, 7. Second, your God is coming back. It seemed God had abandoned the temple in Jerusalem, but he would return and he would do it publicly. He would do it visibly. It says that in chapter 52, verse 8. And third, God is doing a powerful work of rescue. Chapter 52, verse 10. All the nations would see that Israel's God had saved his people from their plight. So this wasn't a personal idea of good news. This was a national idea of good news. And so Babylon did fall. The exiles went back home, but never did anyone talk about Yahweh coming back. But the early Christians believed that Yahweh had come back as Jesus himself. And they believed that his glory was fully and finally revealed when he died on the cross as the innocent lamb, chapter 53, verse 7. And then even more so, glorified, right? Paul said that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again according to the scriptures. And again, this is believed to all be a part of what Isaiah was talking about referring to Jesus and what he would go through and suffer. And the resurrection is the proof of that power. Paul said that Jesus did these things. The other prophet that believed that John is writing about is that of Jeremiah. Jeremiah spent most of his time in the horror of Babylon. He knew what was going on in Babylon, and he pronounced at the end of his book God's judgment on the wicked nation and that has brought these terrible things right to pass. In chapter 50, he talks about Babylon condemning them and he talks about condemning them for their lies. With these two prophets' writings in mind, we can start to understand what Revelation 14 is saying and why it says the things it does in the way that it does. Right? This is the gospel, the good news for those who live under the Babylonian rule or now the Roman rule. First of all, God, the creator, is at last going to sort everything out. Right? In verse 7 he says, Fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Second, Babylon is fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, verse 8. The great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine for adulteress. And third, God's judgment will be just. And it goes through that in verses 9 through 11. And so these things in these final verses 9 and 11 are very symbolic of God's dealing with these nations and what they represent. I don't believe that we are to take them and apply them in a literal sense to people who do not pray the sinner's prayer. It's dealing in a much broader 
area of wrath to these nations and all those who are part of what they are doing as opposed to it being to individuals. We have a tendency to individualize a lot of the things in Scripture, even where it says in Romans, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And we think of it as a person, Jacob, and a person, Esau, but it's a quote from Malachi, and it's dealing not with individuals, but it's a representative of these peoples. And, And so we can get lost when we start making things very individualistic and take away what is happening at the time and what John is trying to communicate to all the believers who are under the oppression of all these people in Rome and not recognizing that God is saying that he is going to do even what he did to the Jewish people in Babylon, but he's actually going further because Christ is the ultimate fulfillment as that servant who gave himself. He was cut off, but not for himself, for his people. Right? All these things are speaking prophetically of Christ and what he has done and how that has shown up in their lives at that time. And so these angels that come out that start declaring these things, they're examples, again, of all the things that were prophesied about Babylon, but now are being fulfilled even in their time with Rome. Okay, verse 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 steady or 180 miles. Okay. We have a hard time understanding the idea of harvest because... I don't know about you, but I've never harvested anything, right? Farming cultures, agricultural cultures, really plan their lives around the planting, the pruning, the caring for, and then ultimately the harvesting that takes place. And so we've all heard harvest festivals, but... You know, to us it means something totally different. But to a community that are farmers who would actually plant and care for crops and then harvest, it was a big celebration. 
The harvest celebration was a time where finally all our hard work has paid off. And it was a lot of hard work, right? I mean, they were up early, they were going to bed late, and they were caring for the crops. They were having to till the soil, do whatever harvesters or farmers have to do. And so for most of us, it's foreign. And I doubt most of us have heard this passage explained as a celebration. But usually the idea of harvest is that. We've heard this probably as one of judgment with the Son of Man executing God's wrath with his sickle and the angel from heaven gathering the grapes of wrath, uh, the wicked nations who are about to suffer God's eternal anger. But the previous chapter, we saw God warn against worshiping the beast. And then in the next chapter, we are going to see these same people in victory singing a new song by a sea of glass. How do we get from there to here, here? In other words, are we going from don't worship the beast, there's this great judgment, and now there's this worship taking place? Or is something more happening? by the people of God themselves maybe being harvested. Because these are to be images of salvation, not of judgment. John is encouraging the readers to face persecution in faith. The reference to the Son of Man is that from Daniel chapter 7. And again, Daniel is to be taken as an example of one exiled in Babylon who was faithful. Take your sickle and reap is an allusion from Joel chapter 3. And likely, even when Jesus in John 4 verse 35 said, the people are white and ready to harvest, right? The idea of harvesting was something that was seen as good not as a judgment. If persecution and martyrdom are to come, they are to be understood not simply as random and vicious attacks by this brutal empire, but they are also to be seen as Jesus himself even using the persecution from this empire as a means of God bringing about his harvest. Why then does it say the winepress of God's wrath in verse 19? Again, it takes us back to the prophetic passage in Isaiah 63, where the staining on the clothes of the Messiah is from his own blood. We will see that in chapter 19 as well, going later on, chapter 19 of Book of Revelation, verses 13 and 16, where he is his robe is dipped in blood. Whose blood? It's his own blood. Okay? Throughout this book, the lamb has conquered through his blood, his sacrificial death, which is the example that his followers are to follow in. The way in which God works salvation and wrath are, are connected because they meet at the cross, right? The cross for us who are believing is one thing, but those who don't believe 
it is something else. It, it stands at a place that either brings this idea of salvation or the idea here of judgment. The wine press is where God's wrath is being prepared for Babylon and the beast. The worshipers who drink of that wine will be judged. But then there is to be that wine that God serves that is to be partaked of and enjoyed, which we'll see again later. A big clue to what this is about is in the terms, verse 20, where it says, the wine press is being trampled outside the city. It's a statement made of Jesus himself where he was crucified. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, it says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. That's there in the city. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, bearing the wrath he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. That's what happened with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 as well. He was taken outside the city, the first martyr. He was killed. The wine press outside the city harvested all those who followed, even though it cost them their life. Their blood is the testimony that will bring about the wrath of God. What about the blood flowing out of the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles? Again, we got to remember it's symbolic, and I don't know that I all understand all these things. But first of all, for blood to actually do this would be pretty much impossible for this large of an area, right? And we've been seeing symbolism all over the place. And so it might be that John sees the river of blood playing a similar role to the water that is measured in depth in the end of Ezekiel. And by it is a work of grace or also maybe a work of judgment because it could be both, right? The whole passage is designed to convey a powerful message which we still need to recognize and hear that God's time will come that God will bring his people safely home, that God will take even the wickedness and rebellion of the world and make it turn to his praise and the salvation of his people. In the meantime, his people are to be encouraged that even in their suffering, even in martyrdom, that God can use it to bring healing while also bringing judgment. And so these things that are taking place are identifying them with the children of Israel in Babylon at a time where they were exiled. But he is fulfilling that prophecy through Christ 
and saying that you are going to be the harvest that God is going to bring from himself. And even though it is costing you your life, which we've seen time and time again, God will bring about wrath to those who it is deserving. That is what I get from Revelation chapter 14. Yeah, that was a fun one. Any thoughts or questions? Just an interesting way of looking at these verses. I know from where maybe many of us have come. Um, again, taking a more literal expression. Uh, I think this makes a little bit more sense. Again, we have to remember most of the book of Revelation is actually taken from the Old Testament. It's just we have to find where. And then we have to identify what they would identify with and try and bring this about. I think the important part here is to understand really the role that Babylon plays with Isaiah and Jeremiah and to see Rome here and the people of God now in this place and how that fits together. Yeah, I think he's taking those passages and trying to use them to help them understand what is taking place currently and how God is still doing even what he did back then. You know, he hasn't faltered you know he hasn't forgotten um he is continuing to prove himself as god even though the gods that are there in rome caesar and all these gods who are presenting themselves are costing them their lives right he is helping them to see that's what they thought but god has done brought them back and god is bringing us to himself um yeah, well, I mean, Paul and all the followers of Christ were the ones who started presenting those things. Um, you know, and again, it's not like Paul or John had a crystal ball and could say how everything was going to play out. A lot of these things are very general, right? It's like God's going to win. We know this is the truth. We now are trying to pit what we see happening, the persecution, the strength of Rome, with the understanding of Christ, the resurrected Messiah, how does victory look in this situation? And that's what John is doing. That's what he's trying to reveal. This is what, you know, this is what victory looks like. Oh, right now doesn't look victorious, but this is just a harvest. You know, God is still going to bring things about. There's still the promise. And he's helping them to see God has promised and will continue to fulfill his promise. But, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see. I mean, gosh, it's hard to, you know, I talk to people who've lost their job and they don't know where God is or lost their girlfriend, you know, and I don't know where God is. Imagine people losing their lives, you know, how horrific that would be. And it's like, where is the promise? You know, what, what is all this we're believing and following after? What's going on here, you know? And the idea of following Jesus' example was what changed that culture. It wasn't the violence. It wasn't usurping themselves and rising up. It was them loving, being martyred, and still believing. 
that won over more and more people until Rome says, okay, yeah, now Christianity is our religion and let's put it on our, all our shields and our swords and we'll carry it further. And all of a sudden it changed, right? All of a sudden the gospel of grace became something that they pushed on the world, which is a different gospel. Okay, well, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, I, I do pray that there is some clarity in these things. I know I struggled in this chapter to try and make things clear, but God, following you is always our example, and you constantly are being brought up in this book as the lamb, the lamb that was slain, and the lamb that has won because of the sacrifice. And I pray, God, we would begin to understand more fully what that means in terms of how we are to live and how we are to interact with the world around us. I thank you again for challenging me and challenging us with these words, and I pray that we would continue to wrestle with them and wrestle to understand them more fully. Lord, I don't fully understand all of these things. Um, this is just a little grasp of the things that I've read and how I understand it, but God... I'm sure that's deeper still. Thank you again. In Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.